Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sharon and Brendan, for bringing the readings to us this morning. What a great reading that passage is, isn't it, from Second Peter. For those of you who are aware of these things, on this Advent Sunday, as we not only think about the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, but we look forward to his second appearing, what a great passage to uh, set us our thoughts and our perspective on the day when Jesus will indeed return. His extraordinary patience bears with this rebellious world, but he will return. Isn't that true? And all the people said? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Well, my friends, uh, as the uh, avid comes up, we turn to a somewhat confronting theme this morning. Will a man rob God? Like much of scripture, it is confronting sometimes. I'm going to pray before we, uh, we turn to this passage. So let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Father, as we, we come to your word again, we pray that we might come with truly humble hearts. We reflect on those words from the prophet Isaiah who said, This is the person who the Lord esteems, he who has a contrite heart and trembles at your word. But we are often not like that. We can be cavalier, indifferent to your word, uh, certainly not humble, but we do pray that you will cultivate in us a, a contrite and humble spirit and people who, however confronting your word, we truly tremble at your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please keep that passage uh, open in, uh, in front of you as, uh, as we come to uh, chapter 3, verse 6 to 18. Uh, in his book, Desiring God, uh, John Piper argues that the highest goal of human beings is to passionately desire God and find pleasure and delight in knowing him and serving him. I heard him speak at the Oxygen Conference a few years ago in Sydney and uh, this is the great passionate heart of John Piper. Any of you know his books and so on well understand he is absolutely driven by this, this uh, conviction that God's desire is that we find pleasure in him. One of his favourite Bible texts is Psalm 16, verse 11, which reads as follows, and I'm reading from the old version. You have shown me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there is pleasure forevermore. That's a great text, isn't it? That could be a text for a church to take on board. Just as we've seen in this, uh, this series so far, the whole purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, find true pleasure in God. So that text from Psalm 16 verse 11 is a very challenging text, finding pleasure in God forevermore. And yet I think tragically sometimes we sell ourselves short and don't in fact experience a level of true pleasure in knowing God, trusting him and serving him. C.S. Lewis, in his book Miracles, which I was referring to again this week, uses an illustration to speak about what life might be like in the new creation in uh, heaven when God brings in his, uh, his great kingdom. And uh, uh, please bear with me, those who are not married, those who are single, you can shut your ears at this point, but just bear with me. Imagine a small boy who has been told that the gift of sexual intimacy is the highest bodily pleasure immediately ask whether chocolates are eaten at the same time. Just bear with me. C.S. Lewis goes on. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. 
In vain would you tell them that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows only chocolates. He knows nothing of the positive thing that excludes it. What Lewis is saying is that the ecstasy of heaven is meaningless to someone who has no appreciation of the spiritual realm or the inner joy of knowing Christ and being assured of your eternal future and that your salvation is secure. And so how appropriate it is as we think about uh, this challenging passage before us, we do not lose sight of God's great desire is that we know him and know great pleasure in trusting him and serving him. Now, as I looked at those passages, it struck me that it bears upon this passage which we are looking at today. So I hope you'll keep the words of Psalm 16 in the back of your mind You have shown me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there is pleasure forevermore. I hope you go away from church today with that conviction and that motivation, therefore, to serve him more completely. If our hearts are set on this world, what we experience in the here and now, rather than laying up treasure in heaven, to use Jesus' expression, of course it will be meaningless to speak about this. Meaningless to speak about delayed gratification, as the expression goes, or putting all our emphasis on what God will offer us in the future. The way this is expressed in the epistle, by the way, is set for Advent Sunday, and here we are on Advent Sunday. Romans 13 reads as follows. Knowing the time that it is now time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness... And let us put on the armour of light. This is a great Advent reading. If Jesus is about to come, return, as we read from Second Peter, what sort of people would you, should we be? How should we live our lives? Now the image here in the passage from Romans is to awaken out of sleep, emerging from a sort of half-drugged stupor, you might say. Similar to the other illustration we've used, by the way, when we began this series, of trying to hide from God. You remember the story I told about little Jimmy playing hide-and-seek and announcing that he was winning because no one could find him? You see, on the one hand, a person might live in a dream of unreality, like someone who has taken, on, taken too many sleeping tablets and they are, their senses are dull, they don't know what's going on, On the other hand, a person might be aware of God but desperately trying to hide from him and from what he requires. So I wonder if you see that as the backdrop as we confront this passage this morning and uh, as the first heading comes up, the foolish inclination to hide from God, for it is a foolish inclination. We know all sorts of people, maybe people who are known to us, no matter how often they are challenged with the Christian message, they will find all sorts of reasons why they want to block that out and hide from God and hide from the Lord Jesus and the extraordinary thing that he has done for us. I think of someone uh, like Stephen Hawking, the brilliant scientist whose wife is a committed Christian, but he, as it were, just blocks it all out. This brilliant scientist will not confront the greatest truth of all, that the Lord has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, which we, which we uh, celebrate at Advent and, uh, and Christmas. The, the problem, of course, living like this, hiding from God, runs in the face of what we know about God. 
For example, Hebrews 4 verse 13, which we've quoted already, says, Nothing is in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that's a scary thought. Everything is stripped bare. When you stand before God, even as he sees you now, there are no, nothing you can hide. You know, even the innermost thoughts of your heart. On Wednesday at Lucy's funeral service, she asked that we read Psalm 139. Again, an incredibly confronting psalm. God knows everything about you. You can hide nothing from him. In the burial service, in the Book of Common Prayer, we read, Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer. If ever there's a time when we need to be aware of that, it's when we're confronted with the awfulness of death. God knows the secrets of our hearts. That's a very sobering thought. God knows the, uh, the motivation we have, knows uh, the things we're planning, even the wicked things we might be contemplating. He knows it all. We might be able to hide these things from our family and friends, but we cannot hide them from God. Now, there are many things in the, uh, in the prophecy of Malachi many truths which come before us which we might like to hide from, many truths that confront us in this little book that we'd like to believe are not there. We'd like to scrub them out of our Bible, but they are. And every word of God written is for our learning. It's interesting this morning as we come to this second last message which we're going to be looking at in this little book, from the man whose name means my messenger, I hope that we can come honestly and openly and ask the question, is there anything I am trying to hide from God? This is not a, I'm not telling you this, is something between you and God, but we do, each of us need to encourage one another in this challenge, is there anything I'm trying to hide from God? The thing is that this habit, this inclination to hide from God, of course, goes right back to the very beginning, to our first ancestors, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and following in fact the first act of disobedience and by the way it's not about the apple when people say it's about the apple it's not about the apple the Bible never says it's about an apple it could have been anything what it's about is a blatant act of disobedience that's what it's about so when we come to the story of Adam and Eve they've committed their sin of rebellion they've disobeyed God rejected his word and God sees them in the garden and confronts them with the question, where are you? This is the age-old question that God still confronts us with. His word comes to us today. Where are you? Where is your life in relation to me? What is going on in your life? Where are your values and priorities? Where are you? And what was their reply? You can go to Genesis 3 and verse 10. It records the words of the man. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. One of the terrible consequences of the fall, man's rebellion against God, was that men and women, boys and girls, would be dominated by two powerful forces, fear and the desire to hide. Fear and the desire to hide. Researchers say that the primary reason that people tell lies is to do with covering up a mistake or a misdeed. Indeed, researchers from the Washington Post found that 
lied sometimes or frequently in order to save face. Isn't that extraordinary? The problem with lying, of course, is that you have to have a very good memory because you've got to remember what you said before, which was actually a lie and not true. So you're trying to remember things which are completely untrue. How much more destructive it is when we try and act deceitfully before God and how much more foolish when we try and pull the wool over his divine eyes. Now this inclination had become habitual in the second half of the 5th century BC, the setting of the book of the prophet Malachi, when he was called to, in prophecy to deliver God's message to the people. The covenant people had lapsed into unfaithfulness, but they were living in denial. It's this theme of unfaithfulness, which is the constant refrain, which runs through this book. And so the opening verses, the opening words of our text I, the Lord, do not change. God is utterly consistent, never capricious, as we just sang in the children's song, utterly to be trusted, always reliable, uh, always faithful to his promises, always true to his character. Interesting, if we skip over to the New Testament, read in 2 Timothy 2.13, the, uh, the writer there, Paul writing to Timothy, say, if we are faithless, and tragically we are, he will remain faithful, or he cannot deny himself. God is utterly consistent and faithful to all his promises. Now, Malachi, as we have seen, had a very, has a very contemporary ring about it, this book. This predisposition to unfaithfulness has penetrated almost every area of society. Some time ago in Time magazine, an article appeared with the title, Kids Without Morals how contemporary this is when you see the news happening among kids. Kids without morals. A correspondent wrote, what's wrong? Hypocrisy, betrayal and greed unsettle a nation's soul. This is Time magazine. This is not a preacher. This is Time magazine speaking. Around the same time, an article in the New Republic entitled The Culture of Apathy, the author identified the widespread, and I quote, sense that nothing is true and everything is permitted. Nothing is true and everything is permitted. A few years ago, some of us witnessed the trial and conviction of Des Campbell, the former policeman who pushed his wife off a cliff in the Royal National Park. You remember the story? That horrific incident. He did it simply to get his hands on her money. We hear about people in public office being discovered for accessing pornography and resigning their positions in shame. Chuck Colson writes, when a culture is beset by both loss of public values and a loss of private ones, the overall decline undermines society's primary institutional supports. He goes on to say, God has ordained three institutions for the ordering of society, the family for the propagation of life, the state for the preservation of life, and the church for the proclamation of the gospel. Did you get those three things? The family, the state, and the church. Now, these are not just voluntary associations for people who have a kinky idea that they'd like to be part of it. No, not at all. These are there, in fact, for the restraining of evil and humanising society. Indeed, they are something absolutely foundational 
to a healthy, stable society. As you see, our own government moving in a much more liberal direction. Recently, of course, they've made it permissible for same-sex couples to adopt children. Now we're confronted with the new challenge of will we completely redefine the Marriage Act? What is happening in our world? Several years ago, a number of years ago now, when I took my position as the Rector of Castle Hill in Sydney, an editorial appeared in the London Observer commenting on the presidential race which was taking place, the American presidential race which was taking place at that time. With 13 candidates on offer, the Observer made the comment, rarely have the American people been offered so great a choice and seldom have they so much reason to feel depressed about it. Does that statement have a contemporary ring about it? Well, this was the sort of situation facing Malachi around 430 BC in Israel. I want you to think about what we see happening in our society, what was happening, the indifference, the callousness, the, uh, the boredom, and so on, which was happening in the 5th century BC. So in this situation, and the second point will come up on your screen, God's call is to wholehearted repentance. We need to be, as a church and as a nation, called to prayer that people might truly understand the seriousness of our condition. So verse 7 says, Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That bold, challenging claim, change the way you're living and thinking and behaving. Return to me and I'll return to you. Now the passage in our Bibles, as I've indicated, is headed, Robbing God. That's a very confronting thought. Well, might the people ask, how do we rob you? The immediate reference is to the people's failure to observe the requirements of the law under the covenant. And did God's people to show themselves faithful to Yahweh? This had to be in every area of their lives. Every aspect of the covenant obligations needed to be observed. And they'd, uh, they'd included the responsibility for tithing. Listen to what we read. In, uh, numbers, uh, in uh, Leviticus 27.30 and Numbers 18.21. A tithe, that is a tenth, of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Or again... I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Now let me say, by the way, this is much more than simply a call to responsible tithing, though it is that. Indeed, it's a whole-of-life thing. What is our attitude to God in, in sense of all of our rightful sense of obligation and gratitude to him? It's really a call to return to the Lord and the observance of all his ordinances, all his commands. Look at verse 7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Decrees, plural. In the broader sense, they've been robbing God by withholding from him what he, he rightly deserves. Now, when I began this series, I said the challenge of this book for all of us is about time, talents and treasure. What does the, the way we use our time reveal? What is the way we use our talents, our gifts, God-given gifts and spiritual gifts? What does that reveal? What does the way we handle our money reveal? 
time, talents and treasure. This involves, of course, this wholehearted response to God's his worship, his praise and putting all of this into practice in our daily lives. And we might ask the question, in what way might we be robbing God? It's a very personal question. I encourage you to reflect on that, to think about it as you read the scriptures, spend time individually, maybe encourage one another, ask that serious but uh, challenging question. You see, the neglect of tithing is symptomatic of a deeper, more widespread disease in the nation. This attitude to robbing God has brought down a curse on them. Verse 9 is emphatic in the original uh, with the words something like, you are robbing me, underline me. The words in verse 10, bring the whole tithes into the storehouse, suggest that some people had ceased to bring tithes or at least were holding back part of the tithe. Admittedly, these were bad times, but Malachi calls upon them to prove God by his faithfulness. Put me to the test. Trust me. Prove me whether I'm able to be the great provider or whether you're going to do things your own way. If you do that, God's challenge is, then the floodgates of heaven would be opened, which suggests both spiritual blessing and abundant rain on this parched land. In the midst of this, of course, we have this refrain, which we've seen already in this book, uh, which comes to us in verse 14. Let me read it to you again. But you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and by going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed... Certainly the evil doers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. This is a serious disease among the people. If this is in fact uh, in the midst of God's word to them, that's what's going on in their heads, that's what's going on in their minds. You see, when God does act, he will even prevent the locusts from devouring their crops. If only they will trust him which would be very comforting to our farmers at this time as we enter a, a, a rich spring, which inevitably brings with it sometimes locust plagues which devour the crops. Indeed, uh, more than this, the surrounding nations would recognise this abnormal blessing. It would be a form of witness to the greatness of Yahweh. Look at verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So the great challenge is... For them and for us, are we willing to trust God? Does he have our best interests at heart? Or do you view him as some sort of ogre, some sort of killjoy who wants to make life miserable? Come back to our initial statement from Psalm 16. God's desire we might find pleasure, joy in him forevermore, if only we can believe that. It's easy to see that the tithe principle can be applied to maintaining a stable source of ministry in the modern world. And we all need to think about that carefully as our envelopes are released today and other people give through direct uh, debit and so on. For a congregation about to enter on a new ministry, good for us to think about this personally, carefully, honestly. Don't try and hide this from God, as it were. Now, some people might say, we don't live under the law anymore. What's all this talk about tithing, the law of tithing? But I have a sneaking suspicion this is just a fancy way of avoiding the challenge. 
Isn't that true? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it was said by them of old, do this, do that. But I say to you, and he intensifies the demands of the law, makes them even more compelling rather than less compelling. And he says not one jot or tittle from the law will pass till everything has been fulfilled. So we cannot take the easy option and say we don't live under the law, we live under grace, so all of that has no relevance to us. That's a very cheap way out. It's interesting, in the New Testament, believers are instructed on the necessity of regular and proportionally setting aside support for God's ongoing work. We as Christians are to excel in the grace of giving, St Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7. In fact, the great motivation for this is the total self-giving love of Christ, which prompts St Paul to say, the end of chapter 9, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. His inexpressible or his indescribable gift. So this is a challenging passage, isn't it? But it is about the whole of life uh, issue and we should not uh, escape from that. But let me finish on a positive note for like much of the prophets, we come to a positive note at the end of this chapter and that is God's promise of what I've called ultimate reward. God is in the business of rewards, even if we might be uncomfortable about the idea. It might sound a bit mercenary to us. Indeed, the, ju- the notion of judgment and rewards may not excite you much, but this passage does end on an encouraging note. If we were to flip over to the teaching of Jesus, we would, would find explicit reference to the notion of reward in regard to prayer, for example. We're not to be like the hypocrites who parade our righteousness before uh, outsiders, no, when you are to pray, you are to go into your private room, shut the door and, quote, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Reward you. Part of our reluctance to consider this idea of rewards is that they are somehow unconnected to the action itself. Do this and then you get a prize at the end of the, the day. But the idea of rewards in the teaching of Jesus is somehow intrinsic to the action itself. It is, as it were, the reward is being the sort of person God wants you to be, finding pleasure in obeying God and doing what he desires. There's something intrinsically wonderful about that. Many of you know know that that's true. Well, this brings us to verses 16 to 18, and I want to finish with this this morning. We see here what it means to remain faithful and God's great faithfulness. How many interesting words are here. We read, then those who feared the Lord, not many in the nation fearing him, but when those who feared the Lord talked to each other and the Lord listened and heard. What an amazing statement that is, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Church is going through a difficult time. People shouldn't withdraw. They get together and talk about it. When difficulties are happening in families, don't withdraw from each other. Gather together, support one another, talk about it. When the nation is going off in a terrible direction, what do you do? Don't throw your hands in the air in despair. Gather together, talk about it, pray about it. What an amazing statement that is. And those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. An amazing statement which suggests that when Christians meet together to share their common concerns, that God listens and takes notice. (coughs) This is another reason, of course, why we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, 
as Paul, as Paul writes in, as in Hebrews 10.25. You know, church is not just, it's not just about you. Why do you come to church? As much as anything, you come to encourage others by your presence here. It's not just about me. Encouraging one another. Let's not give up meeting together as the custom of some is. Hebrews 10.25. What follows in this passage is an even more remarkable statement. We are told a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those that feared the Lord and honoured his name. There might have been disobedient people, but there's a faithful remnant here. They feared the Lord, trembled at his word, honoured his name, and a scroll is being prepared in their names recorded in the scroll. The idea of God keeping written records appears occasionally in the Old Testament, but it comes, of course, to a high point in Revelation chapter 20. And verse 12, the last book in the Bible. Some of you know this passage. Listen to what we read. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. A little later we read, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as written in the books. Whatever these heavenly books mean, they are to remind us that our deeds in this life matter in eternity. And we need to think about that. The attitudes of our heart matter to God. We cannot hide from him. We cannot live in in denial. How we live and how we speak and what we believe truly matters to God. But there's a final encouraging word here for those who remain faithful. This is God's word of assurance to those who persevere. Whatever difficulties you're going through in your life, however discouraged you might be, Let me say, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a great doctrine. You know what it means? The saints always persevere. They never give up. They always hang in there with Jesus. They never, ever give up. What does uh, the prophet say? What does the word of God through the prophet say? To those who persevere, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, on the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the thing you're worried about, between those who serve God and those who do not. Are you worried when you see wickedness going unchecked? Are you distressed when you see good and righteous people suffering? Well, it won't always be like this. God will have the final word. These words in verse 17 remind me of a chorus we used to sing as small children. Some of you might know the the chorus. When he cometh, when he cometh, to make up his jewels, all the pure ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own, like the stars of the morning, his bright crowns adorning, they shall shine in his beauty, bright gems for his crown. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all the true ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine with their beauty, bright gems for his crown. Do you believe that? Do you live in the expectation of that? Whatever difficulties are happening, is your faith rock solid? Do you find pleasure 
in serving God and trusting him. That is God's great desire for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for every passage of your word and again this word to us this morning, a challenging word but also a great encouraging word. We pray that we might take this word to heart, may it fill our thoughts throughout this week and strengthen us to serve you for Jesus' sake. Amen.